My guest today is the Head of Enterprise Sales at Telenor. Here's what some of his colleagues say about him. In my 15 years as key account manager in many different companies, I've reported to several sales managers, but none of them can hold a candle to Torben. Here's another one. Not only is he a great listener, he's also comfortable taking a helicopter view as he is working through the details of a deal. Here's a third. During Torben's leadership, our division underwent a significant transformation where he effortlessly facilitated the move from underachieving business to one of delivering a strong performance on a consistent basis. One of his main assets as a leader is his ability to encourage his team to think big by challenging the status quo. I have personally benefited from his expertise on several occasions where his input has enabled me to steer the right direction and shorten the sales cycle. More importantly, he's also been a key factor in terms of developing my own sales capabilities. He's very well liked throughout the organization. Torben Bungard Nielsen, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot, Paul. Torben, nice I, to I, I know you're Danish, but I don't know too much about your background. Maybe you could tell me a little bit about where you, what that was like. Yeah, I could do that. Uh, <clears throat> I grew up in a, uh, a small town in, uh, in Jutland. Uh, that's like the, uh, the main uh, uh, part of, uh, of Denmark. Mm -hmm. uh, I grew up in a, a, a small family with my brother and mo mother and father. And uh, uh, they, they had their own little business, uh, my mother and father. So uh, I kind of uh, grew up in an environment where uh, you, you could say uh, hard work was uh, that was uh, part of the daily life, uh, long hours and uh, six days a week, uh, oftentimes. So uh, that's kind of uh, the background I had. Uh, very uh, steady uh, upbringing, you might say, and uh, loving family, but uh, hard work, definitely. So, yeah, and, and I'm, I'm wondering what sort of a role the fact that you grew up in a small business played in you ending up in sales? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. Um, it's a good question because I'm, I'm, maybe I'm not the typical uh, sales guy. I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, that much of an uh, extrovert uh, in, uh, in my personality. So uh, I don't fit the, uh, the kind of uh, usual uh, picture you have of a, a salesperson. But uh, I think maybe what uh, kind of drove me into sales was uh, I always wanted to uh, kind of uh, the business world was also always uh, something I followed and it was attractive to me uh, from uh, Early on, uh, also when I was uh, a teenager, I, uh, I was interested in business and, uh, and following the new business news, etc. So I knew I wanted to do something along those lines. Uh, and then uh, uh, as uh, in my early 20s, I, uh, I actually got into the... Uh, bar scene, uh, you can say, uh, I was a bartender and uh, uh, got into a chain where we, uh, it was like uh, a chain that was growing and uh, it was kind of a, a thing there to, if you could go to a new city and have your own uh, uh, franchise, uh, that would be uh, the biggest thing. So, but, uh, and 
that was about selling. It was about being behind the bar and selling. So, mm. uh, and, and what was that like being an, intro, an introvert? Um, yeah, but uh, actually, I, it was okay because uh, I also liked partying. So that uh, kind of fit pretty well with that. <laughs> Yeah. No, but it it is being a bit of an introvert. It's like uh, you know you uh, you spend energy when you are around people, and then you uh, you you uh, go to uh, a more quiet setting to uh, kind mm -hmm. of uh, fill your uh, fill up with the energy again. So mm -hmm. if you can just uh, keep the balance, then uh, yeah, then it's not a problem. Yeah, I think I heard a term the other day. They're they're now calling that an ambivert. Yeah, Somebody that's who moves kind of seamlessly the, between. Yeah, some. I actually heard that maybe uh, a lot of, or the majority, maybe uh, actually ambiverts because there are few that are at either end of the spectrum. So, yeah, yeah. And so, when you were younger, who would have influenced you a lot in terms of your values? <clears throat> yeah. Who would have influenced me when I was younger? That's a, that's a that's a pretty good question. Uh, I think when I was uh, at that uh, younger age, even though I was uh, interested in business, uh, etc., I didn't have uh, anybody close to me that were actually successful uh, in uh, in kind of doing a business at the level I thought was interesting. Mm. Uh, you know the the family I came from. That was a that was a very small business, so mm. I didn't have anyone really to uh, to look up to. So uh, uh, I wasn't kind of influenced uh, from my surroundings. It was more uh, looking out to and uh, mm. seeing uh, maybe uh, the stories about uh, those who did well around the world. Mm. I'm wondering if there then you talk about growing up in a small family business, if that in itself was a motivator for you that you looked at the business, thought this could be so much more if only, and and that drove you to go out and push things further. Yes, actually, uh, that's a that's a good point. I uh, I remember I did have uh, conversations also with my brother as uh, uh, as we grew up. Uh, around what could be done uh, to grow a business. Uh, it's, uh, it wasn't kind of uh, in the uh, cards, you could say, for my, uh, for my parents. Uh, they didn't think of it uh, as something that needed to grow. Uh, but I definitely, definitely saw opportunities. And sometimes I also remember wondering why uh, they didn't go in, uh, in directions when there was talks around the uh, the dinner table, you know, about uh, how the business was going. And uh, I remember there being opportunities where my dad said uh, kind of like, uh, yeah, but it, that would be too uncertain uh, and something along those lines. Uh, and I was thinking uh, more like, why? Uh, why not try it? Mm. But of course, yeah. I didn't have the uh, responsibilities. Uh, so... Yeah. Yeah. I'm often interested in that is that there is this in business, there is the, there's an itch that some people have to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. And then you look at other businesses and they're kind of going, but we're happy. Yeah. 
and and the people often with the itch the itch can it's it's the it's the actual i won't call them unhappy that's not fair but there is there is a tension there's a something in their personality which you'd never describe as happiness but it's something it's a fire that's causing them to grow and grow and i sometimes envy the people who are kind of go no it's fine yeah <laughs> and yeah. Uh, that itch never gets satisfied no, and and actually, uh, the people who think it's it's fine, it 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 probably is fine for them, and uh, maybe they are yeah. more comfortable not taking that uh, level of risk. But I can also see, uh, and I can see now in my present job that uh, it, our uh, strategy, our growth strategy now, that's uh, also. Uh, sort of determined by the people who are there now uh, oh. wanting something more than uh, just uh, a few years ago uh, in Telenor. So, mm. Yeah. So you're head of enterprise sales in Telenor. Talk to me then about that journey from college to where you are now in terms of some of the, the big picture lessons that you had to learn along the way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, the first, uh, my first aim uh, was uh, to, uh, you know, get the go from uh, being a, a salesperson on the phone and uh, to uh, to getting your uh, your own car and actually driving out to visiting customers. So uh, uh, that's uh, I think it's about twenty years now since uh, I got the job with the car. So um, that was kind of the best first big step for me. Uh, and of course, I didn't have a clue what I was doing back then. Uh, it was uh, that was with uh, our now competitor, the uh, incumbent uh, telco provider in uh, in Denmark. Just uh, finding out back then that uh, they uh, actually now they had competition and uh, they needed to uh, to be more uh, proactive towards the customers. So. Mm -hmm. uh, I was kind of the first uh, batch of uh, salespeople who were doing that, uh, and um, yeah, I actually I, I just took the phone and uh, asked if there was anything uh, I could do. Uh, so that was that was basically it, and then uh, I got my my first uh, round of uh, sales training back then, and it kind of uh, uh, occurred to me that uh, there was actually a methodology uh, to use uh, to get what you wanted. And that was something that uh, I think since, since then that has been, uh, that has attracted me a lot. I think that's the, maybe the key most interesting thing about sales is to uh, reach your targets or uh, objectives based on a uh, defined way of doing things mm. uh, because in the in the big picture uh, people they are pretty much predictable in uh, how they behave uh, so if you approach in one fashion then you can then you know pretty much what you can expect uh, and i think that's interesting and mm. uh, yeah Okay, most people tend to have a story around a pivotal experience or where things just clicked for them that changed the, 
the direction and the trajectory of their sales career. And I'm wondering if you have one of those moments where just the light bulb went on for you. Um, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not sure it was that exactly that clear, but I think a pivotal uh, uh, moment for me was probably when I went from, uh, from uh, TDC to uh, Oracle, uh, also the place where I, uh, I met you the first time, Paul. Yes. Uh, just getting into a, uh, a corporation of that size uh, and with a uh, more uh, U.S. mentality, you could say, where it's, uh, they were very hardcore on uh, targets and uh, uh, etc. So I think that was, that was maybe a pivotal moment for me uh, where what you deliver is more or less who you are. Uh, so that kind of does that put a lot of undue pressure on people you said what you deliver is who you are that's how people see you and you're either delivering or you're not if you are you're a great person if you're not it's not going to last too long and I'm yeah I'm just wondering does it put undue pressure or is that just necessary and that sales is self-selecting that if you're just not cut out for it you're not going to exist and you're better off somewhere else i think for me the experience was that it uh, it it made it much more clear to me what needed to be done it kind of uh, gets rid of all the things you you can spend your time in sales doing a lot of uh, other things than actually selling uh, but when there's so much focus on uh, reaching your targets and uh, delivering, then that kind of uh, takes all this uh, other stuff out of the way because it becomes less important. So it, it, it gives you another focus. That was what I experienced at least. Yeah, no, it makes, makes perfect sense actually. I like that idea of the focus is about what it removes in terms of distractions rather than what it imposes i guess it's a it's it's the, the the flip side of it in terms of going then from a quota carrying rep year after year meeting targets to one of sales leader what were some of the lessons that you had to learn along that path <laughs> well uh, the first one uh, people don't do what you tell them to do uh... <laughs> Yeah, I I'm, wonder why not. I, I... I'm, I'm still working with that one, uh, yeah. but uh, that was uh, that was uh, a lesson that uh, I remember very clearly. That uh, I was wondering why the things I asked for, why the why did why do they not happen? Uh, and uh, so again, then. Uh, Back to the uh, my uh, appreciation for a method a methodical uh, approach. Uh, mm. There's also a method to how you uh, actually uh, motivate your uh, your uh, team to do what uh, mm. you ask them to. Uh, so that's mm. I kind of went back to to that and uh, thought in in along those lines. Yeah. That's an interesting one because you're, you're drawing parallels between the process for influencing reps is the same process that you're using for influencing uh, 
prospects. Yeah. That, yeah, it's, it's about you know expectation setting and rapport and identifying their re and all of those things. And I, I'm often curious because again, it was, that was a surprise to me when that penny dropped as to oh, it's actually the same. Is that you have all of these skills built up over the years, and then for some reason, when you go into a different role, we feel that it requires something different, and it doesn't. You know, like you would never tell a customer, "Here's what you're, you're to do," but when you no. become a manager, suddenly we often feel like that's what we should be doing. And it's a, it's a hard lesson to have to learn, I think. Yeah, but, and, but also I think it's, uh, it's, we're talking about the same basics of uh, how uh, people, they work uh, and function. It's the, it's the why, what and how. Uh, mm. And uh, with a focus on the why, of course, that's, mm. uh, it's very important. It is with the customers and it is with... Uh, with with your team, uh, you can't stress the why enough. Mm. I wonder if that's a generational thing, Torben, where maybe 40 years ago you could have told employees what to do. It was part cultural, and I'm not talking about Danish culture, just cultural of authority and respect for, for, for that authority in, in organizations. Um, for whatever reason that you could do that and it was expect, expected that you were in a junior position in the job and your job was to do what you were told by our even the term our superiors yeah and now certainly in the last 20 years that that culture that world has changed where now you can't use that authority anymore you have to persuade people and, and maybe i'm just wondering if that's the shift yeah, it, it, uh, I think you're, uh, you're probably right, uh, but you can also see it in the, uh, not just, uh, uh, it's not just a question of time, it's also a question of geography, right? Because uh, there are in some parts of the world where it's still much, uh, very much this uh, sort of uh, thinking, uh, well, if uh, my superior says it, then uh, I'm going to do it now. Uh, where in, uh, as in... Uh, well, the Nordics, uh, I think, uh, is uh, maybe especially known for uh, this more team-oriented approach and uh, back and forth between uh, employees and management uh, and not just doing uh, stuff uh, that you're told to, but uh, discussing the things. Uh, and, uh, of course, there is the, uh, the, the advantages that... Uh, as a manager, you get a lot more insight into what's actually happening mm. uh, and what your, uh, what your team is uh, actually thinking. Uh, that probably is uh, something that you miss a bit if, uh, if you're managing in, uh, in a place where it is more about uh, go do what your superior says. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious, just to switch a little bit, a lot of people, in my experience anyway, over the years, have this sense that the Nordics is just this one homogenous region culturally. And even if they don't think of the Nordics, certainly they would think Scandinavia was one homogenous region. You're working for a Norwegian company in Telenor, you're Danish, I know you, you, you speak Swedish, to a good level as well, um, and and Norwegian, I presume. 
Um, I'm curious to know what your, to, to people who don't have that experience, how would you describe the, the cultures, the, 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 the commercial working cultures within Scandinavia, say? Just keep it focused on the three Scandinavian countries. Yeah, right. But there are, to, to us in, this, in Scandinavia, there are a, a lot of uh, actually rather large differences. Uh, I think it, the differences, they come from, uh, from the uh, their cultural differences that are coming from uh, what we do in the, uh, in the different countries. Uh, if you have Sweden, uh, they have um, historically had a lot of, uh, you could call it also big business, even if it was uh, very long ago, they've had, uh, you know, uh, 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 woods, uh, what do you call it, plantations. Or, uh, yeah, forestry, where, I think. Yeah, and... Uh, yeah. Uh, that kind of uh, business is where planning ahead uh, is very important. You have to plan for the next 10 years because so the decisions you make today, they are very important for what is going to happen in 10 years. Whereas in uh, Denmark, we've been always more of a trading kind of people uh, doing a good deal, uh, uh, companies trading a lot. Uh, so that's more like a quick, quick shifts Ooh. and uh, what's, what, what can be bought cheap today and sold uh, for a bit more tomorrow. And that, that's kind of influenced the, the differences in decision making, where in Sweden, they, you have a much more uh, consensus oriented uh, culture. So I also experienced that going to Sweden now. Uh, you usually tend to have a lot more people needing to sit in a room uh, and talk about it a lot more before the decision is actually taken. Whereas in Denmark, it's uh, much more like, uh, yeah, we'll do that and then uh, go ahead. Does that lead to any kind of a frustration when you're dealing with people in Sweden? There's a different pace to how you want to get things done. Yeah, it does. Uh, I can, I, I've often seen uh, examples of it when we have uh, Nordic uh, meetings and we're deciding on uh, approaches for our Nordic customers or Nordic bits. Uh, it is uh, sometimes it's very, very uh, obvious the differences. Uh, and, and, and sometimes you can just sit and watch uh, a Danish account manager try to get a decision fast and uh, agitating to go in a direction and uh, you know it's not going to happen because uh, you know who's uh, also in the room and uh, you know why it's not going to happen so that's uh it's really interesting but i i and i would consider myself reasonably familiar with scandinavia and the nordics i've traveled a lot i lived in 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 finland for for six months one year and and I absolutely love it, but it was as 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 a non-Scandinavian, it was always a, kind of a, a an interest to understand the subtleties, because because the outside, even the language to a non-native speaker can sound very much the same. A lot of the you know apart apart from Finnish, obviously. 
Um, but I'd never ever looked at it that way. I, I, that's fascinating, the idea of that the, the, the historical commercial requirements were long-term planning. Well, if you're a trader, like I was talking, there's a storm here in Ireland. Well, if you're a trader, you know, you, you're literally your plans for the week yeah. can be interrupted, particularly if you're a seagoing trader. So uh, I'd never looked at it that way. That's, that's really, really fascinating. And the fact that that lives on in the DNA and in the psyche of how people do business long after, you know, w w with this World Wide Web, a lot of those requirements are, are kind of defunct to some extent. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, but, but they still live in our psyche, which, which is fascinating. Um, tell me a little bit about what you're doing currently that is giving you a real sense of accomplishment and achievement. <clears throat> yeah, well, the last uh, uh, two and a half years, I've been uh, heading our uh, enterprise sales function. So uh, that when I started that, it was also about the time where we uh, actually decided on the uh, growth strategy in uh, Telenor coming from a more uh, efficiency-oriented uh, strategy. Uh, so my, uh, my job's been kind of uh, very clear. The objectives uh, sell more, uh, to, <laughs> to, be, to be very direct. Uh, so I, uh, I've spent the last two and a half years uh, looking at what kind of uh, levers do you have to, uh, to pull uh, in when, uh, when you need, need to sell more. Uh, so we've been around, uh, um, well, I, I usually I look at it uh, in uh, like three dimensions. Uh, uh, if you're an account manager or account executive, uh, it's the same as if you're, uh, as in my position, it's, uh, it's quantity uh, of uh, the sales efforts, it's the quality of the sales efforts, and it's the prioritization like who do you spend your time with? Is it uh, prospect A or uh, customer B? Uh, that's the a decision you have to make all the time. Uh, so we started actually by uh, focusing on uh, the quantity. Uh, so raising the quantity in our sales uh, work, the number of interactions with customers and prospects that was the first priority. So we've done that uh, over the first uh, year, year and a half. We've been very focused on that. And now we've sort of shifted our focus to the quality of the sales work. Uh, and begin, we've begun introducing a, a new uh, sales methodology and uh, implementing that. Uh, so we've... we've uh, of course, we've done a not, lot of uh, specific things to uh, to kind of uh, uh, make sure that this uh, quantity and after that the quality focus was uh, implemented in our organization. We've had a new CRM system. We've uh, uh, created a whole new coverage model. We've uh, uh, made a new commission model. Uh, and then we also begun to talk about uh, sales in, uh, in another way, I think. 
we are not uh, we don't we're not satisfied in the way we talk about it before you may it wasn't maybe that important uh, if you won or lost a deal it is now right uh, so yeah, it, that, that sounds like it's a change in sales culture as well. It, it actually is. Uh, yeah. We talk a lot about that. Uh, yeah. Um, you said you talked about quantity versus quality. That's an interesting one. Sounds to me like what you went for was a sense of let's put more energy quantity into this and then we'll use that to figure out where the sharp edges are where we need to adjust and fine-tune and make some of the efficiencies yeah you're right about that uh, because if uh, if you don't have the the needed uh, volume of uh, interactions with the uh, customers and prospects then uh, it it's not that important if you're good or bad. That's kind of the basis. Uh, that's the getting the volume up of uh, interactions. Uh, so that was the, the first step. Uh, and of course, uh, as you say, when we uh, the more interactions we have, uh, the, the more important the quality also becomes, and we have better we can better kind of gauge uh, what we need to change in our approach to the customers. And what's been the most challenging part of going through that change process for you? Um, a big challenge is to uh, all, always kind of have a feeling of uh, how fast can you move forward? Uh, because uh, as, I, as we talked about earlier, because I say something, it doesn't mean that everybody's doing that tomorrow. Uh, so you have to uh, make sure that everybody's on board and uh, that you're moving forward in a pace uh, that's the right pace for uh, for the uh, team or department or the function that you lead. Uh, so that's that's kind of uh, that's that's difficult, uh, and you you all you have to listen a lot to what. Uh, what's set uh, around the coffee machine and uh, uh, have uh, chats with, uh, with all the sales reps, uh, et cetera, and uh, be very thoughtful about uh, how they see uh, the change that they're part of. Mm. Speaking of uh, getting around the coffee machine, it's, it's often used euphemistically as, as a, a, something as a substitute for informal conversations rather than the highly structured formal ones but that was taken away during pandemic I, i'm assuming that you guys are back in the office from what you just said uh, how difficult was that to go through that period where a lot of the the norms in terms of how you would engage with employees were turned upside down i think uh, actually it was uh... Uh, mostly it was difficult for the management. Mm. Uh, I saw a, uh, a set of uh, sales reps who just uh, kind of uh, went into their home office uh, instead of the uh, uh, 
company office and uh, kept on uh, and of course helped by the fact that uh, everybody else our customers our prospects was in the same situation so it was there was just uh, another way of doing the same thing uh, so our uh, our performance actually uh, has that's been uh, growing all uh, during the uh, the pandemic uh, but of course there is uh, this uh, uh, f- from the manager perspective uh, there's uncertainty uh, a lot of uncertainty about uh, how how we're we doing uh, how are our people doing uh, uh, a lot of stuff uh, when you don't have uh, your employees close. Mm. How much of that though is about the the, the manager's paranoia? And I, I mean that. Like, yeah, but I think uh, I think versus there is, actual performance. There is quite a bit of uh, of that uh, management paranoia, and uh, also uh, uh, with us, there's been a lot of. Uh, different views on it in, uh, in management uh, from uh, those who uh, just uh, wish that we were uh, in the office uh, all the time and think it's uh, absolutely horrendous that we have to, uh, to allow for that much uh, flexibility to, uh, I'm more uh, uh, in, the, in the direction of uh, just uh, letting it uh, be totally flexible and uh, measuring uh, by results only. Mm. Yeah, because it is harder to keep an eye on the behavior. So it does require a bit of a leap of faith and trust in the employees. I'm wondering how it factors in, and it's not a question I've actually explored with anybody else to date, but I do think it's an interesting area, is how that feeds into your hiring policies because there's now a new factor that you have to take into account, which is people's ability to work uh, remotely and to be self-motivated and not require the office environment to find motivation in. And I'm wondering mm. if, that's, if, if, that's, if that has factored its way into even the kind of questions or you ask during hiring or the hiring process itself. Yeah, actually, I, I think for me, I don't see any uh, any difference in uh, what we look for in uh, in new hires. Um, very early on, I uh, I found out that when I hire salespeople, I look for two things uh, basically. I look for uh, empathy that makes sure they uh, can get along and they are well liked by uh, customers, and then I look for drive, ego drive, uh, the thing that. Uh, as you say, uh, makes people uh, uh, want to uh, achieve. Uh, so if I can uh, just get those two things, uh, then I think uh, then it's a good hire. How do you determine those two things? Start with the ego drive first. What is it that you do ask, find out that tells you this person has a high ego drive? That's uh, interesting you uh, you mentioned ego drive as the first one because of course empathy that's uh, that's the easy one right uh, <laughs> you just talk to people and find out but ego drive that's a bit more difficult uh, because everybody has uh, has good stories about uh, how great they are they are and uh, and all the achievements they've uh, they've done so 
for me, it's, it's about the drilling into those stories and uh, asking a lot of questions about uh, how they participated in uh, any particular success story uh, and what, uh, what they did. Uh, so that, but that's an interesting one because somebody who's going to say, actually, it was a team effort, you know, I really wasn't. That tells me they have a, a low ego. Now, that's not the same thing, obviously, as ego drive, but is that they, they're not looking to, to be in the limelight all the time because they, they actually have a strong ego. They, they don't need that feedback. But the, the drive is, to me, is a different thing. It's, the, it's a fire that can be quite a silent burner in the background that you don't always see, that sometimes the quietest people have the strongest drive. And maybe it's not a weak, it's, it's actually, you know, strong egos are, again, often the quietest people because they don't feel the need. And I'm just wondering how you can separate those two out in a, in a hiring process. Is there any, is there anything that you do specifically, or is it more just of a gut sense that you have? Well, I, I have to say it, it is probably more of a gut sense because there are also the, uh, the paradox is also sometimes that uh, those who are actually uh, very good and has a high ego drive, Sometimes they're not very good at uh, kind of uh, talking about how they, uh, what it is they do. Uh, they're not very knowledgeable about uh, what it is that their actual impact uh, is, uh, even though they do drive things, things forward. Uh, so maybe it's uh, not always that easy for them to, to explain it. Uh, so. You have to, to do quite a bit of digging and uh, sort of see if you, if you can get a sense of it. So mm. that's, that is the difficult one, absolutely. What for you is the most satisfying aspect of sales leadership? I would imagine the least satisfying is having to constantly trying to get people to do, you know, you just can't tell people what to do and, and, and that, that's, that never ends. But just in terms of what's the most satisfying uh, the bit that you would do almost if you weren't being paid to do it. Uh, the most satisfying uh, thing is, for me, uh, without a doubt, raising the performance level of a team. <clears throat> that's, uh, that's what uh, kind of uh, gives me uh, what I need to uh, always be... Uh, uh, quick out of bed and uh, coming into uh, work and uh, looking forward to it uh, every day. That's mm -hmm. that's it. When uh, when you can make an impact, a positive impact, uh, and seeing some uh, a team uh, grow, that's uh, that's absolutely the most satisfying mm -hmm. thing for me. If you had one wish for the sales industry as a whole something that you feel the industry could do better, what would that be? <laughs> One wish for the sales industry. Yeah. Uh, as, I, uh, as I wrote in, uh, in a LinkedIn post uh, recently, uh, we could uh, 
keep uh, the boring uh, PowerPoints uh, in our briefcase. <laughs> so ban, ban PowerPoint. Uh, at least the boring ones. It's no, it's yeah. down to it's it's down to uh, the sales methodology talk and all that, uh, and the uh, not uh, coming uh, in with uh, a lot of uh, powerpoints and functions and features on uh, on the first meeting. Uh, mm. I think that is uh, it's still a major problem in uh, in sales in general. Uh, of course, now I also have a lot of uh, of people who want to sell something to me. Uh, so uh, sometimes I also have uh, I'm the, I'm on the buyer side sometimes, and uh, I just see it. Uh, and I know uh, you know three minutes into a meeting, you know this is going to be boring. Yeah, yeah. It's like you you've seen the story before, and it doesn't end yeah. well. Yeah, and. Have you have you implemented that in your own team? As in, I won't call it a ban on PowerPoint, but certainly an emphasis on not using them, if at all possible. Yeah, that's a, that's a journey we've started now, uh, and uh, of course, when you do that, it's uh, it can be a bit uh, terrifying as a sales rep to to be told to uh, keep your PowerPoints in the in the briefcase because you have to do something else. What do you do then? Uh, yeah. So. Right now, we are focusing a lot on uh, what do you do instead. Uh, so that is uh, creating a, 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 a set of uh, prompters with uh, the right uh, questions uh, for the right uh, uh, titles that you talk to and usage scenarios and success stories and all the stuff you need to drive an interesting conversation where you engage the customer uh, and gets to talk about the customer's mm -hmm. business instead of uh, us talking about uh, how great we are and what we can do. When you talk about prompts, are they prompts that are built into some sort of a system that pop up to remind a rep to steer the conversation in a particular direction? No, it's, it's not digitized uh, right okay. now. Right now we're just... Uh, working on uh, on the uh, on writing all the material yeah i i'm, I'm wondering how that works because I, I, the, the the digitized version i've heard of in more and more lately and i don't know personally that i could work with that i would struggle because i know if i'm on the phone and my wife is trying to say have a conversation with me where she said, you know, don't forget that. I'm kind of quite like, <laughs> I can't talk to this person if you're in my ear. And I would imagine that it's similar if you're trying to be present and have a conversation with somebody and these prompts are popping up, whether they're digitized or not. And I'm wondering how do you integrate that into the skill set of the rep that they're that they're automatically able to know where to steer the conversation without having to have these external prompts. I guess what I'm really asking is, how do you make it that it's temporary, that the, the prompts, which, which I understand why you would do it, but they are integrated into the talk tracks of the sales rep so that they actually don't need them after a short amount of time?
Yeah, but that, that is the basic idea of it is that uh, uh, through training, we, uh, we have to get them kind of uh, internalized so that uh, we can use it uh, when it fits in in the conversation. Uh, and of course, uh, the idea of getting prompted by uh, some system uh, is, uh, I also think that's, that I wouldn't think that would work either. So it's more about being confident in uh, uh, the knowledge that you have a large set of directions. You, can, you have a set of directions you can go in. You have sort of a conversation three, tree. Uh, so you can venture down an avenue and if it's closed, then you uh, go back and uh, take a different path. And you know how to do it. You know how to kind of... Uh, direct the conversation uh, in the right direction uh, so it uh, can possibly lead to you uh, getting to the objective. Mm. Oh, that makes sense. Uh, is there a business book, Torben, that had a, a big influence on you and your own thought process when it comes to leadership and sales? No, actually, I think uh, my influence is uh, more from uh, not specifically business books, but uh, uh, I have an interest in uh, behavioral uh, psychology and behavioral uh, economics. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, this uh, thing about uh, how how our mind works, uh, I think that's very interesting and uh, also very useful in, uh, in the context I'm in. Mm. Uh, I think the first, the first one I ever read along those lines was the, uh, the original uh, Freakonomics book. Okay. Uh, kind of, that kind of uh, got me onto that track and that's uh, a lot of years ago now. Yeah. Is there an element of psychology in there as well? Because the Freakonomics is a book, is, is observational, behavioral. Um, I don't know. I can't remember. I know I read it years ago. I can't remember if they go into the psychology of what was going on in terms of what they observed. Because uh, I'm marrying that with somebody else who gave me advice years ago. He's, and the advice was the best business books are in the psychology section of the bookshop, not yeah. in the business section. And I'm wondering then if you're talking about behavioral psychology, is, is there something in there uh, that influences how you are, who you are as a leader, apart from the Freakonomic side? Because it's just, that's, um, I'm thinking more, I guess, in terms of theory or a body of psychology or, yeah. Or is it more uh, the practical stuff like Freakonomics? No, it's, it's not that I use a, a specific theory. It's more that I, I feel I, I, I carry a, a sort of a, a knowledge about uh, how much your uh, personality or your uh, mind or habit, how much that actually controls what you do uh, in everyday life. Uh, uh, and it were in your work uh, setting as well. So I just think having that knowledge that uh, that sometimes uh, that's important uh, 
in working with people. I, I can't say that there's just uh, it's a certain point that's uh, where I was uh, hugely inf influenced, uh, but uh, there is a, a realization that uh, I that I also carry with me, and that is uh, that my influence is uh, actually bigger than I thought it was. Uh, oftentimes, it just depends on uh, who you talk to and how you frame things. Uh, I think uh, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, as a, a new sales leader or when I'm back when I was a sales rep, I thought that uh, there was a lot of things in a business that was uh, like carved in stone. Uh, and that was that was just how it was and uh, probably couldn't be changed. Uh, but I've come to realize now that uh, you can change pretty much everything. Uh, it's just about uh, who you talk to, the timing and the framing. So that's kind of uh, also uh, made myself realize that uh, my influence is uh, probably way bigger than I thought it was. Mm. Or could be. Yeah, that, that's a really. That's a great answer. It's really interesting as well. And I had a conversation with somebody else recently about that, and they had actually thought about this in terms of over their career, the people they coached, and they saw those people go on to rise up in organizations. Some started their own business. Some went to run other companies, and that the impact that they had, the philosophies that they had embedded years ago in conversations were now impacting entire organizations and that people not alone in terms of how they interacted with those organizations but how they benefited in terms of prestige and ego and salary the their, their families and how they were impacted and that this like this ripple effect that they had through just sometimes very quiet conversations years earlier yeah yeah so we, we, I, think we are, I think you're right. I think we do have a lot more influence. And I think with the internet now, you can, you can set up a podcast and have a conversation with somebody that you could, just couldn't have done before. And you would never know. I've had feedback from people saying, you know, it could be on this podcast and say, you know, I was listening to Torben on your podcast, Paul, and he really got me thinking. And they're driving along in their car. And then they have that conversation with somebody else. And it, it, it is it's fascinating. It's, it's, it, we often kind of get stuck in our own little world sometimes without thinking yeah, about absolutely. that phenomenal impact we have. Um, I, I'm, I'm, we're almost coming up on time, Torben, and, and it, the time is flying by. I added just a couple of quick questions for you before I let you go. Uh, it's one I, I ask every guest, which is this, is if your house were burning down, and everybody's safe and if you have any pets your family obviously your pets if you've got pets they're safe your phone that's safe and you had time to run back in and grab one item to save it what would it be and why <laughs> one item mm. Mm. i can see the smoke coming under the door torben it's, it's, yeah. it's you don't have long <laughs> Well, I'd have to say, uh, I'd have to say my uh, Omega Speedmaster Tintin oh, edition. Very nice. It's not on your wrist, no. No, not today. Very good, very good. That's a beautiful watch list. I, I, yeah, 
is there a, is, 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 is that Bond influence or did you have an affinity with the brand before Bond? Uh, no, uh, my first Omega was was, uh, was the Bond uh, version of the Seamaster. So yeah, 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 yeah. That there, there's nothing like an Omega to say I've arrived. It it has the it has the quiet confidence that that things like what's that uh, Rolex doesn't have. Rolex screams, "Look at me! Look at me! I'm fantastic." The the people who wear Omega. They, they don't have that need. They just have it already. They're just it's it's the ultimate brand. It's just um, yeah. I agree. But uh, I also have uh, also have a Rolex. So uh, if I need to uh, <laughs> if I need to uh, make an uh, an entrance, where yeah. Uh, where but I it is. A bit. But it is funny, isn't it? In that in 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 either situation, that it's it's never about telling the time nobody buys a rolex to tell the time nobody buys a seamaster no. to tell the time it's really about telling a story and Absolutely. you have to tell the right story in the right context yeah that's right i agree yeah yeah we could do an entire podcast on, on that one just alone uh, very good and and final question for you torben is when your time on this planet is done and there's a book written about your life what would you like the title to be? It, I'm a kind of a, kind of a modest person uh, in some ways, Paul. So uh, it's, I wouldn't be. It wouldn't be a, a title that was uh, too flashy. So uh, maybe uh, it was be. It would be uh, not too bad. Not too bad. I like it. That's. This says a lot on that as well. Not too bad. Yeah, I, do. I like it. I think we'll keep that one. Good stuff. Listen, uh, Torben Bungard Nielsen, thank you so much for being my guest today. I've thoroughly enjoyed the journey down memory lane and understanding and getting sh you sharing your insights. Uh, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. It was a pleasure.